Please pray with me. Father, we do bless you and thank you for this day. We pray as we come to your word uh, that you would open our hearts and our minds, uh, that we might hear from you in a very tangible way. We thank you for uh, the grace of having your word in such a way that we uh, can read it, hear it, learn it, uh, and inwardly digest it. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It is so good to be with you all again this morning and to, to bring greetings, as I always do, from your brothers and sisters throughout the Carolinas, uh, reminding us we're part of a bigger family than just Village Church. And uh, it's also good to be back and see that things are starting to feel kind of normal again. I, I know you all are happy for that, but you've done such a, a great job. I was here kind of more in the middle of the pandemic, and you guys have done a wonderful job of maneuvering through uh, what has been a very difficult year. And I'm so thankful for Seth, for all of your clergy and staff and leaders, and each and every one of you for the ways that you've pressed in and you've remained faithful to the life and the worship and the mission of the body of Christ, even in the face of a world global pandemic. And today's confirmation is uh, actually, I would say, in and of itself, kind of the fruit of your faithfulness and God's faithfulness to us and to you uh, in adding more and more folks uh, to your number and to this community. Those who are being confirmed today will make a public profession of their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, but it's not in isolation, it's in the very tangible context of this community, of Village Church, and of this branch, the Anglican branch, of God's universal church. And so, uh, making that individual profession of faith corporately in the midst of this people. And then uh, we'll pray over each of those who are coming forward to be received or confirmed, and we'll ask God the Holy Spirit to empower that, to make that a reality. And that's a, a reminder to me and I think to each and every one of us that we need uh, the ongoing inward work of God the Holy Spirit in our lives in order to faithfully follow Jesus. And so that's why we do it. Uh, we're asking God to accompany, to release gifts and to, to move inwardly in the life of his people. And all of that secures, we're confirming a promise that was made at baptism. And that promise is, is that we are Christ's very own, that we belong to him, that we have been buried with him and raised with him in new life. And so that's what we're confirming today in these confirmations. But before we move to that, I want to I wanna focus us primarily today in Genesis, that first reading that we heard read so well this morning. Uh, the opening chapters of Genesis uh, are so crucial. Uh, and uh, if any of us intend to do any kind of theological thinking or theological work as Christians, as biblical believers, then uh, we find ourselves time and time again coming back to those opening chapters of Genesis, because what they do for us is they establish 
uh, a particular kind of worldview and approach to how we understand ourselves, how we understand the world in which we live in. And these, these stories are foundational uh, in the way we think as Christians. And what we hear in these inspired texts in those opening chapters is not, and, and it didn't intend to be, it's not a scientific explanation of how the world and how we came into existence, but it's a very creative narrative which is filled with truth about our beginnings. And uh, it's given in a narrative account, and there's figurative uh, pieces to these narratives as we hear it. But it all begins with just this statement. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The heavens and the earth. God created it. What, what, what the, the narrative's telling us is, is that we're not here by random chance. We're here because of the creative will of God who spoke our creation into being. And as he created all that is, is, in turn, if you read through the kind of the unfolding of creation, God time and time again said, the creation is good, and it was good, and it was good. And when he had f finished creation, he said, it is very good. And that is worldview thinking. Our world that God created is good, and God has declared it good. So a spiritual growth is not kind of escaping from the world because, in fact, God created the world. What God made is good. And what we find in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2 are really two different accounts, but complementary accounts, which speak of the unique place that, that we, men and women, humanity, have in the created order. For God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, the text tells us. And he gave humanity dominion. He gave us dominion over the creation. And he placed the first man, Adam and woman Eve, in the garden in Eden. You know, what, what he created at the beginning was, in fact, heaven on earth. What Adam and Eve had was they didn't have to wait for heaven because they actually had it. They were living in paradise. Adam and Eve had one another. God brought them together to fulfill mutually one another. They had fellowship with God. They walked with him in this garden. They had it made. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Well, that's what we heard in chapter 3, isn't it? Exactly what went wrong. All of a sudden, there was this serpent, this kind of mysterious serpent that that could speak and did speak, and he was crafty above all other creation. And so what we have in the, ser in the serpent is actually the created order, because he was created, the text tells us, by God. But we have the created order in rebellion against God. And what the serpent did in that rebellion was to bring temptation into the story. He brought temptation 
to Eve in particular. And what we learn in this is kind of how temptation not only led to, to Adam and Eve's downfall, but how temptation works in our lives. Because what did the serpent say? He begins and he said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any of the trees of the garden? You see, what the serpent did, what the temptation was, was around God's word. Did God actually say this? And so the attack was on the word of God, what God had said. And we can anticipate in our lives that temptation comes by taking and twisting and attacking the very things that God has said and God has revealed. And that's exactly what was happening in the garden and and he didn't even get it right he misquotes what god said and and that kind of hooked eve into this conversation and eve said well, wait no he didn't say we can't eat of any of the trees actually we can eat of all the trees there was only one tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that he said you shall not eat of that and if you do you will surely die and satan comes back at that saying, did God actually say? Coming at the, the, the word of God, attacking the revelation of God. It's what we see happening in Jesus' wilderness temptations, isn't it? The, the, the devil came and tempted Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And all of those temptations centered around kind of a twist or a turn or an undermining of God's word. And what Jesus did was he came back with God's word and refuted the, all of the, the kind of the work and temptations of the devil. It played out differently for Jesus than, than it did for Adam and Eve. So Eve corrects the serpent and he, she clarifies. She said, no, it was only that one tree that we're not to eat of. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, whenever man attacks the concrete word of God with a weapon of principle or an idea of God, there he has become the Lord of God. When we stand over the things that God has said and revealed and make ourselves judges of what he said, when we try to rise above, then we find ourselves in trouble and that's exactly what the serpent was doing with Eve he said you surely will not die God told you you would die if you ate of that tree no what really is going to happen is your eyes are going to be open and you're going to become like God you're going to know good and evil that's why they call that tree the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and so what what, what the tempter was doing, what the serpent was doing, in essence, was impugning the character of God. He was saying that God has deceived you. God has lied to you. God doesn't really intend what's best for you. You're in competition with God. You can become like God. You eat of that tree, and you know what? Your eyes will be open. You'll be enlightened, and you'll understand all the knowledge of good and evil you'll be like God himself you won't even need God anymore and that's how the temptation comes and and that's how Eve 
received it. And then in verse 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for fruit and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, see, she, she not only swallowed the fruit, but she swallowed the lie that came with it. She took the fruit and she ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. It's amazing to me, Adam's <laughs> presence in this story, because that text just said it. He was there. It was as if he was watching all of this unfold. And what we find in Adam, who was actually, before Eve was created in the story, he was the one who was given this command around the tree. And yet, it's almost as if he's standing over there with his arms folded, watching this temptation go on with his wife and completely passive. No leadership, no interjection, no come alongside. He just sat there and watched and said, well, let's see what happens when she eats of it. And she ate of it, and then she offered it to him. She was still alive, so he thought, well, maybe, 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 you know. And so he eats of it, and then their eyes were opened. But their eyes were opened not in the way that Satan said their eyes would be opened, to understand all that God understands, the mysteries of good and evil. No, their eyes were opened, and all there was was shame. They saw their nakedness. And they went and they got fig leaves, and they sewed it together to cover themselves up. Because that's what happens with sin, is, is the, first, the first thing that rushes into our lives when we succumb to temptation is a sense of shame, a sense of wanting to conceal and cover up, a sense of worthlessness and disappointment. And that's exactly the state that Adam and Eve found themselves in. But there was more. Verse 8 and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God said to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. There's shame and there's fear. All of a sudden, the, the kind of the consequences of, of disobedience, the consequences of the fall of Adam and Eve, and consequently all of us, came in shame, and it came in fear. And then God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit to eat, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And she said, well, the serpent deceived me. So in addition to the shame and in addition to the fear, they were afraid of God. It's comical, hiding from God in the garden. How do you do that? There was also the blame. That was a consequence here of the fall. That was kind of the state in which they were in. Adam was put, passing the buck. Well, Eve did it. It was her, that woman that you gave me, kind of actually blaming God for giving him the woman. And, and then uh, Eve, why, why, why did 
why did you do this? And well, it was the serpent, you know, so there's this blame game going on. I mean, isn't that, isn't that kind of what happens in us? I mean, this isn't just about Adam and Eve. This happens, we, we, we get into that place of, of rebellion. We get in that place of disobedience and deception and that all that kind of was intermingled in this story. And it's all followed by this sense of shame and this sense of fear and this sense of blaming and kind of trying to, to push it out. And what the story tells us is that there are real consequences uh, to our sin. And that's as God begins to kind of speak words of judgment. He kind of hears the consequence of what you have done. And he begins with the serpent. He said, because you have done this, cursed are you among all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's an interesting little glimmer, an interesting little glimpse of redemption in this curse to the serpent. There's this allusion to a wounded victor a man, a seed of the woman that will one day bruise the, he the head of the serpent. That's how you kill a snake, isn't it? You stomp its head, and at the same time, you're bruised. Certainly, I think we have in that just the seed, the promise of redemption one day, even as God is cursing the evil one for his activity that one day a seed of woman will come that will crush the head of the serpent, himself being bruised and wounded, certainly alluding to, to Christ on the cross. You know, it's fascinating. The Apostle Paul in the 16th chapter of Romans said the peace of God will soon crush Satan under your feet. He says to the people of God who are in Christ that in Christ we too have victory over the enemy. We have victory over the rebellion. We have victory over the consequences of sin and death in our lives. God continues his speaking forth the consequences. He says of the woman that she will be destined to have her pain multiplied in childbirth and that this fall will affect the, the relationship of husband and wife, that your husband will rule over you, that there will be a distance, a disconnect in desires between you and your husband. It's fascinating, the consequences of sin, and, and you see it here. And as for man, God speaks a word of judgment. He doesn't curse the man and the woman. He curses the serpent, and he curses the ground. But to the man and the woman, he plays out the consequence of their sin. He said to the man, you're destined for, for extreme toil to, to, to be able to bring fruit out of the ground because I have cursed it, and you're destined to be dust, that there will be death as a result of this disobedience. For you are dust, 
he said, and to dust you shall return. The very words we use on Ash Wednesday to remind us of our mortality, of the reality that we fall in line with what happened at the very beginning of creation. And then the very, the very last word of uh, this text that we had read today from Genesis gives us something of a note of grace. Verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. They had rebelled. They had been disobedient. They had suffered the deception and the fall that had consequences well beyond them. And yet God is making provision for their shame. God takes the skin of animals that he created and provides covering. He begins to provide covering for our shame, certainly a foretaste of what he was to do for us. And the one whom the Apostle Paul calls or describes as the second Adam. That in this second Adam, Paul says this in Romans 5, 17, For if because of one man's disobedience, death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. You see, we see in spades in this story the reality of sin, of temptation, of its consequences, of God's heart and desire, of the ways that the enemy works in our life, and yet God works it all out in his son Jesus Christ. The promise, the grace is fulfilled in the one person, Jesus Christ, because he reverses the effect of what began in that garden. And what was the serpent's word, take and eat, becomes Jesus' word at this table. But it's the bread of life. It's the reversal of, of all of our sin and our shame and the fear. And he takes the bread and he gives it to us. He says, take and eat. Receive the abundance of grace that's ours. And that's what we're going to do today around this table. And that's what we're going to pray today over those who are being confirmed. Let us pray. Father, we bless you and thank you for your word. We thank you that you have chosen not only to call us into being, but to speak to us in ways that we can hear the truth of who you are. Step fully into that abundant grace which is ours in Jesus. For we pray it in his most holy name. Amen.